starting at the first verse. You can use the Bibles at the end of the rows if you'd like to look. The Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And now we turn to to Luke, and you'll find the reading on a page 1053, chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. The parable of the ten minus. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent him a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. For those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Danny. A very good morning to all of you. <coughs> For those of you who don't know me, I'm Paloma Lee. I'm one of our occasional preachers at St. Paul's. I'm also the wife of John, who many of you will know, um, who would normally be leading our second Sunday worship band, but he's currently in the middle of rural Warwickshire singing instead. Now, in terms of getting to know me, not only should you know that I'm an occasional preacher and a wife, but very significantly, I'm also a huge fan of murder mystery TV shows. I cannot get enough of them. And I think this is something that I've inherited from my mother. We do occasionally question whether there's something quite sinister wrong with us after we've watched two episodes of Midsummer Murders back-to-back, followed by an episode of Lewis, topped off with some silent witness and an Agatha Christie for good measure, all in one evening. Thankfully, after the first service, someone came up and informed me that the new series of Endeavour starts tonight, so I'm set. I've realised that this interest, or to give it its proper name, obsession, has been a feature in my life from a very early age. When I was a child and my friends would come over to visit, we'd watch episode after episode of Scooby-Doo, and I'd always pause it just before they revealed who'd done it and make everybody write down a guess, and we'd see who got it right. I promise I'm good fun. (laughs) Now, um, one of the the favourite murder mystery TV shows in our house is a show called Death in Paradise. By a quick show of hands, who's who's heard of and or seen? There we go. I'm in good company here. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Death in Paradise, it's set on the beautiful Caribbean island of St. Marie, and it documents the life of a British detective who's sent from London to head up the local police department. Now, the thing I love most about Death in Paradise is the fact that all of the episodes are really formulaic. Every single time, I try and guess who the murderer is, and it's actually not too difficult. There's always some sort of locked room mystery, And it always comes down to three things. Who had the means, who had the motive, and who had the opportunity to commit the murder? And as I say, as a viewer at home, it's brilliant, because if you just work your way through that short checklist, you're pretty much guaranteed to work out who done it. I'll come back to that very shortly. So as Tom said, this week we're talking about faith and ambition. Now, ambition is described and defined in the dictionary as a strong desire to do or achieve something. The root word comes from the Latin ambire, which means to go around canvassing for votes. You can imagine a sort of determined politician, determined, strong desire to achieve something. And why are we talking about ambition? Well, if we look at the uses of the word ambition in the Bible, we get quite a mixed picture of it. Four times in the New Testament, the Greek word erethia is used, and it means strife or contention. And so in English, it gets translated as selfish ambition. In Philippians, we're told to do nothing out of selfish ambition. But then another time, a different Greek word is used, which means striving earnestly. So Paul writes in Romans, he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel. So that picture from the Bible tells us that ambition isn't straightforwardly good and it isn't straightforwardly bad. So we're going to have to do a bit of detective work of our own. And thankfully, as I've just explained, I'm a bit of an expert when it comes to detective work. 
But we shan't be looking at murder today. We'll be looking at faith and ambition in these two passages that we've read. And as I said, in the murder mystery TV shows, they look at the means, the motive and the opportunity. But we're going to look through three similar but different lenses at our passage. We're going to look at the motive, the means and the master to unpack where we see faith and ambition at work. And just as I, as I continue with those points, I just ask you to hold in your mind these two contrasting images we've seen in those two passages of ambition. We have the overambitious builders at Babel who are seeking their own fame. And on the other hand, we have the two good servants in the Matthew translation of the same story. They're good and faithful servants. So let's compare and contrast those and look at the motive, the means and the master. But first I'll pray. Father, would you open your word to us and speak to us through it this morning? We pray that you would um, speak deep into our hearts Challenge and encourage us, Lord, by your spirit, that we may understand you better and learn how to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So before we begin our our investigation, let's inspect the scene of a crime and just do a bit of a a recap of those two passages we heard. I appreciate we don't normally have two readings, so, so, so bear with me on this. We'll do a quick summary. So, Tower of Babel. Before we read that passage in Genesis, we've had the flood God has made the covenant with Noah and his sons that he will never again destroy the earth. And then we have a description of the large families that came out of Noah's sons. And at the very end of the previous chapter, it says that from these nations, they would spread out over all the earth after the flood. This is a a very famous painting from the the 16th century um, of the Tower of Babel. Um, and it's a, it's a time where everybody was speaking one language and they were building this fantastic city. Um, this, this, this picture actually formed the inspiration for the architecture of the EU Parliament building because of that idea of bringing together languages. So we've got our group, and they start their construction in verse 3. Verse 4 tells us what it is they're really doing, what their ambition is. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they're making a name for themselves. They don't want to be scattered. Which, interestingly, goes against the explicit command we read twice earlier in Genesis, where God tells mankind to fill the earth on those two separate occasions. Verse 5, I think we see this beautiful and slightly amusing irony. They're building a tower up to heaven, but verse 5 tells us that God had to come down to see it. And then in verse 7 and 6, we see the consequence um, where God decides that he's going to confuse their language to scupper their plans for this rather arrogant tower. And then in verse 8, our second twist of irony, they end up being scattered. So exactly the reason they set out to build the tower was what happened to them. The story paints a picture of these over-ambitious builders who are seeking their own fame. So let's have a look at our next story. The parable of the minas, or or talents, as it's often translated. Um, As I said, the same story is told in Matthew's Gospel, um, but there was a a good reason I chose the Luke account, because there's some extra really interesting nuances and details to the account. The story is being told while Jesus is at um, Zacchaeus, the tax collector's house, for dinner. 
He's caused quite a stir by associating with sinners. And he's just about to enter Jerusalem after our passage to be crowned as king. So it's quite a poignant story set in that context. He tells in verse 12 of a nobleman who is going to become king, foretelling what will happen to himself. The nobleman, before he goes away, gives a mina or a talent to each of ten servants, which is roughly equivalent to about three months' wages. And this is set in the context of people rejecting the kingship of the nobleman. But he goes away, becomes king anyway, and returns. And he wants to see what his servants have done with the investment he left them. So verse 16, the first servant took his one mina and received ten more in exchange. And the master is overjoyed. As I say, in the Matthew account, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He's rewarded for his ambition. And the second servant comes in and says, I've managed to get five more minas. And again, the master is overjoyed. Well done, good and faithful servant. But then we get the third servant who hid his mina because he feared his master. He didn't have ambition to put it to work. And as a consequence, he receives the angry rebuke of the master, who says, you could at least have put it in the bank where I'd get interest. And that mina is then taken away and given to the other servant. And the passage concludes with this rather dramatic climax where justice is done and the king triumphs over his enemies. So in that story, we have this picture painted of two good and faithful servants. So with those two contrasting images in mind, let's do our forensic investigation and look at the motive, the means and the master to see if we can understand more about ambition. So starting with the motive in those different stories, what is the motive? So in the Tower of Babel story, we read that the the motive is twofold. They want to make a name for themselves. There's an element of selfish ambition It's about them. It's about securing their future and their reputation. This motive also reveals a lack of trust. They don't trust that God will provide and protect, even though he's called them to fill the earth and scatter. And then the second motive we see is fear, that fear of being scattered. The uncertainty of that, though, drives them to look inwards rather than outwards. And they don't seem to be trusting God. As I was writing this sermon, I was reflecting on examples in my life where that's true of me. And if I'm honest, I can see these two motives at work. Um, Particularly as John and I prepare to move to Singapore in summer, I'm still in the process of securing my job transfer. And I've noticed that sometimes I might take opportunities at work. And if I really challenged myself, the motive behind those was quite selfish. It was about making a name for myself so that people knew who I was and what I could do. And there was also an element of fear at work. I didn't fully trust God that he would provide a job for me, so I thought, I've got to take this into my own hands. And what this passage challenges us to do is to look beyond that, to look to God. These examples and the Tower of Babel show wrong motivation, bad ambition, As we said earlier, ambition isn't inherently wrong. There's nothing wrong with building big towers. But we do have to question our motive. Why are we doing these things? 
And we can compare that to the crossover with the third servant in the parable of the minas. In verse 20, we're told that he was afraid of his master. Again, he's motivated by fear. But interestingly, in Babel, the fear caused too much ambition. And in the parable, fear caused a lack of ambition. But we also see an example of good ambition in the parable, with a godly motivation. The first and second servants had a desire to achieve something for their master. They wanted to take what the master had given them and multiply it for him, so that they could honour him and faithfully steward what he had given them. So perhaps that can be a good test for us, to ask ourselves, why are we doing something? Is it for God, for his glory, or is it for our own glory? So on the screen, we'll we'll fill in that little table. So we've got selfish ambition and fear in the Tower of Babel. But in the parable of the talents, we see an example of godly ambition. So what about our lives? What is it that motivates us? Is it selfish ambition and fear? Or is it ambition for God's kingdom? So let's look now at the means What was the means by which the people in our stories achieved their ambition? Where does faith play a part? As we saw in the Tower of Babel, they're using bricks. They're using their skills, their abilities to build a city for themselves, relying on their own strength. But that's not how God operates. This is in direct contrast to a verse we see in the next chapter of Genesis, where God promises Abraham, who becomes Abraham, that he will make him a great name. So that greatness, that having a great name, comes from God. That's not something we strive for ourselves by our own strength. And for us now, we're made great by Jesus, by his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection. All the glory and honour that is due to him is given to us. But that's not something we earn ourselves. That's by faith in him. And again, contrast that with the parable of the talents. The first two servants, they put the money to work. In doing so, they take a risk. There's the risk of opposition because, as we said, it's in the context of people who reject the authority of their master. And there's also a risk of failure. The investments could have gone badly. Otherwise, the third servant wouldn't have opted out if it was an obvious win. But God praises them for being good and trustworthy, for being good and faithful servants. He doesn't praise them for being successful and rich, but he praises them for their trust and faith in him. It requires faith for us to believe that God will take our offerings, however small, and multiply them for his glory. So again, if we fill in the next line of our our table Tower of Babel, they're doing it by their own strength. But in the parable of the talents, the two servants are doing it by faith in God. And in our lives, do we rely on prayer? Do we have faith that God will answer our prayers when we're setting out to do something? How are we using our bricks, our skills, abilities, connections, social position, education, experience, whatever it might be, Whatever God has given us, are we relying on our strength to use that? Or are we having faith in God? So, on to the third and final point, the master. Who is the master that they're serving in these passages? David Foster Wallace, who's an American writer, 
um, this is a fairly well-known quote, says, there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And I think the same is true if we put the word master in. There's no such thing as not having a master. Everybody serves a master. The only choice is who we serve as our master. In the Tower of Babel, they don't recognize God as their rightful ruler. We see this in their disobedience. As we say, the Genesis command to fill the earth is reiterated in chapter 9, but they don't want to be scattered. They want to do things their way. There's also an element of subversion in the passage. Some commentators have suggested that the idea of building a tower to heaven was almost to get them into heaven so they could, they could be on a level with God, which sounds very similar to the sin that Adam and Eve committed by eating the forbidden fruit to be like God. They were their own masters, and they didn't recognize God's rightful position as their king. They didn't revere him as king. But then, in our parable of the talents, we have this kingship debate raging on between the people who do want the nobleman to be their king and those who don't, which, as we've said, is, is, analog, analog, uh, is, is a parallel to um, the, the debate that rages in society. Do we want Jesus to be our king or not? And the servants in this context recognize that God is their rightful ruler. But the third servant had a bit of a warped understanding of who that master was. He had him down as a miserly, petty, condemning master. But that's not who God is. The second and and first servant understood that God was a generous king, that he freely gave resources to the servants. They also accepted that God had rightful ownership over those things. They belonged to God. Everything we have comes from God. And again, from the Matthew account, we read that the king, that the master invites the servants to share in his happiness. There is a delight when we use things that, is given, that are given to us by God. So we're called to have an attitude like the first and second servants, not like the third servant. They knew that God was their rightful ruler, And as a result, they treated everything in their lives as a gift from him that should be used for his glory. So if we fill in the last line of our little table, we see the Tower of Babel, they don't revere God as their God. And in the parable, God is the rightful ruler of the first and second servants. So let's just think for a moment about our lives. Who is our ultimate master? As I said, there's no such thing as not having a master. We all serve someone, but we have the choice of who that is. Is that God or is that our boss or our friends or our family or our spouse? So we've looked at three M's, three lenses to the passage. And this can serve as our checklist in our lives. We can ask ourselves, what is our motive? What is our means? And who is our master? Perhaps there was one of those M's in particular that may have struck you. Perhaps God is challenging us to reconsider the motive, the means, or the master in our lives. And in all the different areas of our lives, be it family, relationships, 
work, church ministry, hobbies? Where are we ambitious? And is it good ambition? Is it ambition that's motivated by a desire to do things for God, done by faith for God as our rightful ruler? Or is it the other kind of ambition? Is it selfish? Is it about us and our strength? In those episodes of Scooby-Doo that I endlessly watched as a child, there was a brilliant moment at the end where the person in the ghost costume or the disguise was unmasked to reveal who was truly behind it. We've read two stories with two contrasting pictures of faith and ambition. As I said at the beginning, we have the overambitious builders at Babel who are seeking their own fame, relying on their own strength. And then on the other hand, we have two good and faithful servants who are serving their master by faith. So the question I want to leave you with is, if we pull off the mask in each of our lives, if we do a grand reveal, which one of those characters would we reveal underneath? Amen. Thank you very much, Paloma. The band are going to come up now, and we're going to have the opportunity to respond as we sing.